Well, thank you uh, for being here today, and we hope that uh, you will be blessed from being part of this worship service, whether you are taking part of it in person or whether you're joining us by Facebook Live. Uh, we hope that uh, what we have to say this morning will be something that will be an encouragement to you uh, in your endeavor to, to uh, walk the Christian walk. Uh, we have, over the past few weeks, uh, talked quite a bit practical lessons about um, the current situation we're in dealing with this virus that is uh, that is infecting our world and is changing the way that we have to live at least temporarily and we hope that that goes away soon and uh, that we're able to find a vaccine and return to life as normal and we've had some some great lessons about practical Christian application to that. I'm going to change course a little bit this morning and talk about something that's a little more fundamental. Kind of go back to uh, basics as it were. I'm going to talk about baptism and I'm going to talk about it uh, from the context that to a lot of people in our world today it's a stumbling block. Uh, there are a lot of people today in, in the Christian world that people that would claim themselves to be Christians but have not been baptized uh, don't believe that baptism is essential for, for salvation. And you think about that is that that is a virus in itself. And it's one that we have an opportunity as Christians to perhaps eradicate because we can teach them otherwise. Uh, that baptism is part of God's plan. And we're going to look at that, uh, some ideas this morning that will hopefully assure us that that is the reality and help us to to communicate to our friends and neighbors in a way that uh, to help them understand this very real truth about God's teachings. Um, we know that, that stumbling blocks are something that, that exist in the world. And I, I would submit to you that typically the things that give us the hardest time in life is not the stuff that we don't know. You know, if I don't know something, I'm going to get on YouTube and I'm going to, I'm going to YouTube and figure out how to do it. That's, that's pretty easy, especially in our world today. But the problems that we run into are not what we don't know, but it's the stuff that we think we know, the assumptions that we make, but we're not right about those assumptions. I can think of those I've been a lot of times working in Excel or any computer program and you're trying to get it to do a certain thing and you become very frustrated. Most of you probably have this experience. And you become very frustrated. And if you think about that, it's probably because something that you thought was true that you had assumed was true and you were, you were building on that assumption, but it turns out that that assumption was wrong. And it may be something very, very simple. And once you got that fixed, life went on pretty easily after that. But you couldn't get past that basic assumption. Um, I've told this story before, but uh, several years ago, um, I, in the evenings at, at night, I would charge my phone by my bed, and I will hook it up to the cord. And there was a couple of times that it, fall, it fell off the cord and it pulled it. You could kind of think, my assumption was, because shortly after that, it stopped charging very well. And I thought, well, I, apparently in that coming detached like that, it had damaged that little 
connector in there, and I was going to have, I've done some research about replacing it, and so I go into this guy, and I, he's, he works on these phones, and I explain to him my dilemma, and I very articulately explain to him that here's the problem, that I've damaged those little portals in there in that connector, and he walks around the corner, and I hear And he comes back about a minute later, and he says, here, it works. All it was is a bunch of fuzz that got in there, and it clogged that up, and once he squirted some air in there and cleaned it up, that phone worked fine. But see, because I was functioning, functioning on the assumption that my real problem had to do with the, the damage to the connector, and that proved me wrong, I could never get to the real answer. And I think that, that affects a lot of problems today. And so we deal with assumptions, and those assumptions are wrong, and we can't ever get to where we need to get. And I think that's true with a lot of people uh, regarding baptism. But we're going to talk about the Jews for just a moment. You know, the Jews, Christ himself was a stumbling block because the Jews had the old law. They were God's chosen people. But Paul describes it this way, is that it, there was a stumbling block to them that they could not get past the idea that one could be saved through this Savior, Jesus. And not only was it going to be available to the Jews, but it's going to be available to these people that were not God's people, that is, the Gentile world. So you can think about it, it's, it's almost counterintuitive. The Jews had all these provisions. Jesus came as a Jew. Jesus' ministry was first to the Jews. The gospel was preached before it went to the Gentile world. The, the apostles carried that message to the Jews. God even designed the old law, and that whole economy was built around a shadow or a picture of, of salvation that would be true in Jesus Christ. All of that was... All of that was built in, and, and so, you know, the, the Hebrew letter even specifically talks about that, and it's, the Hebrew letter is a letter written to Jews that says that, look, here's the old law, and, and how much better the new law is, but not only is it better, your old law was a type of this new law. God used prophecies Related to Jewish history to prove that Jesus Christ was indeed the promised Messiah, the King that was that was promised to the Jews for for so many years, and yet they rejected him. After all of that, after all of that, and it was because they could not get past the premise of that they were going to be saved. Their salvation, their righteousness, their standing with God was based on this old law. And they, they could not shake that. Um, Paul describes it this way in 2 uh, uh, Corinthians chapter 3. He says, But even unto this day, when Moses is read, a veil rise on their heart. Now, not that they couldn't understand the law of Moses, but they couldn't understand how that applied to Jesus. They could not make that connection. 
And so it was a veil, it was a, it was a misconception, it was an assumption that they were building upon that was wrong and they couldn't get past it. So let's talk just a minute this morning about baptism and ask the question, is baptism really essential to salvation? Well, the arguments against really, I guess, are twofold. One is, is that there are people, and uh, full disclosure here, I grew up a Baptist, uh, and growing up a Baptist, you, you're taught that you're saved by, by God's grace through your faith, and, and, and then there's no works, and, and if you say, if you were to say that the baptism, if you were to say that baptism was part of salvation, then you would, that, that in their mind would be a work. So this idea is we're saved by faith and not by our works, and baptism's a work. So that's, that's one of the premises that, uh, that we kind of have to be able to get past. And then the second one is the argument that the thief on the cross wasn't baptized, and yet Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And so there are a lot of people that will go to that as an example, and they'll say, well, you know, he saved the thief on the cross, and he wasn't baptized. So we're going to look at that. Well, the first one is I'm going I'm to put up three scriptures that are pretty common to the, to the argument that we're saved by grace through faith and not of works. And Ephesians chapter 2 pretty much says that. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, a faith not that of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest that any should boast. So if, if that's all we had, you might come to that conclusion. That if, if that was the entirety of the New Testament, then you might come to the conclusion that, yeah, well, there's nothing else that needs to be done. Here's another passage in Romans chapter 3. Being justified freely by his grace through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So you're, you're redeemed free, just completely through grace. And then the most famous one, if you're a Baptist, was this is the one that every Baptist knew, is that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. And, and I, I want to say to everybody right now, those scriptures are 100% accurate in teaching what they're designed to teach. You know, one of the problems in the, in the New Testament, in the New Testament first century, is that the Jews were trying to be, trying to be justified by the law. They wanted, they, they, again, they fell back on that idea that they were justified because they were better than everybody else because they followed their own law. Turns out they didn't really follow it as closely as, as they pretended, but that was the idea. And so, and so Paul, in, in, in a lot of his writings, would teach that, look, you're not saved by your own works, and, and that's true today, brethren. I want, us to, that, I want us to get the wrong idea this morning. You can't be saved by your works. There is nothing you can do to unsin. And all of us have sinned. And so since we can't undo those sins, the wages of sin are death. And so somebody's going to have to pay for that. And it took the blood of Jesus Christ that came and died, though he had no sin, 
to make up for that. So all of that is still very true. And I don't want us to run from these scriptures in any way. They are, they are a vital part of our understanding of God's word. But James says this. James, and I've heard uh, TV preachers even say that, you know, James and Paul argued about this. And they would point to, to James saying this, and I don't believe it's an argument at all. I believe it's a clarification. He says, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone say he has faith, but he had not works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister, that's, that's the question. So that is right on point, isn't it? Is faith alone enough to save you? Well, James goes on to say that if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say to him, Depart in peace, be warm and filled, but you do not give him those things which are needful for the body, what does it profit? What good is it? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's alone. It's of no value. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 10, he says, For, for we are his workmen, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So I want you to notice, let's go back. Because notice Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourself, it's the gift of God. It's not works lest that any should boast. But then we go to the next passage in, in verse 10, the very next verse, what does he say? He says, for we are his workmanship. He's created us. And he's created us for what purpose? For good works. So he didn't say, I'm going to give you this free gift and then you just go out there and live any way you want. It doesn't really matter because it's a free gift. He's created us, and we're his workmanship. You know, if, if you build something, you build it for a purpose, and you expect it to be able to accomplish that purpose. If you build a house, you expect it to provide shelter for you. You don't, you don't expect it to provide food for you. you provide, you're expecting it to provide shelter. And so he created us for good works. And so if we were to go out and not do those good works, where does that leave us? So I want you to look at this. Many of you may know that I spent a number of years um, coaching basketball. And this is obviously a player that's in a game that has taken a shot. Okay, so what can we learn from this shot? Well, as a former basketball coach, I can tell you something about what happened before the shot by looking at this picture, even though the ball's already left the, the shooter's hand. I can tell you that the ball did not start right. Typically, you would teach a player that they're going to shoot the ball off of their right foot if they're a right-handed shooter, so it should come up right above the right eye, just like this. And so it should be in the shooting pocket, and so the left hand should stay on the side and the right hand behind the ball. But what we find here is you notice that the player's right hand shoots out to the side and the left thumb is pushed out. Well, that, that tells me that they stirred the ball in the middle of their body and they pushed it out like that. The ball is also not going to have a true backspin. 
So there's, there's all kind, I mean, I could go into a whole lesson on just the shot and what we can glean from the foul throw. I can tell you that this player jumped slightly forward. You can tell by the angle of their body. It was probably a three-point shot. They gave them some additional power. Their eyes are on the rim, which is a good place. There's a lot of players that have watched the ball. That's a bad habit. So I'm, 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 I'm pointing out these things not to teach you about shooting a basketball, but to get you to make the same connection that James made. What James was saying back here is that we can tell a whole lot about the faith by the works. Just like we can tell a whole lot about what the shot looked like before it left your hand by looking at what it looked like after. And so faith without works is not really faith. Faith will, if you're a golfer, you're going to have a follow through. If you don't follow through, you've slowed your swing down before you hit that ball. That's just, that's just the way it is. That's the reality. And James is saying, if you don't have works, do you really have faith? And so those people that would say that, well, you're going to be saved by your faith, that's partially true, but a working faith that's a saving faith is going to be one that has works. So what's baptism's function? So again, if you play the semantic game of, well, you're only saved by faith and not works, what does this say? In 1 Peter in verse number, uh, chapter 3, in verses uh, 20 and 21, it says, when, when once the divine long-suffering laid in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few souls, that is, eight, were saved through water. You know, for a lot of years, I didn't understand that. I didn't understand what it really meant. But they were saved through water. You think about the world that Noah lived in. It was a sinful world. God looked and he saw nothing but wretchedness and miserable people that were sinful. And, and it repented God that he even created the world and created man. But he found righteous Noah and he was going to save him and his house. And so he created this, so Noah built a, a boat, an ark. Took him over a hundred years to build it. Noah was saved through water because the sinful world that, that he was saved from was destroyed. That sin was destroyed in that water. That's the same thing, brethren, that happens on the anti-type. That's what happens with us in baptism. There is also an antitype which now saves us. I didn't think it was essential to salvation. It says here, whether you call it a work or whatever you call it, it says that baptism saves us. There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh. It's not taking a bath but it is the answer of a good conscience toward God. So is it a work? Is it not a work? I don't know. I don't really care. It's an answer of good, a good conscience toward God, and it's what he says that we need to do. So again, our religious friends that would, that would say that I don't need to be baptized, I'm saved just by my, by my faith, 1 Peter 3, 20 and 21 tell us something different. 
so let's look at the thief on the cross. It says, Then one of the criminals who was hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answer rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing that you are under the same condemnation, and we indeed justly? For we receive the due reward of our, our deeds. But this man hath done nothing wrong. He then saith to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say unto you, Today you will be with me in paradise. And again, there are a lot of people that will say, Well, here's an example of a guy that wasn't baptized. So I'm going to just look at this in three real quick arguments. And the first is, is that Jesus had the power to forgive sins on the earth. Do you remember the story in Mark chapter 2? There was, Jesus was in the house of Peter. And it was noise above that Jesus was there and he was healing people. And so as you might imagine, there was a whole lot of people who began to gather up around that house. And there was one man, he, he, was, uh, he was paralyzed, he had the palsy, he couldn't, he couldn't walk. And he, but he had four good friends, because they brought him to Jesus. But the trouble they ran into is they couldn't get anywhere near Jesus because of the, of the crowd. And so what they did is they went up on the roof, they tore the roof apart, and they dropped Jesus down. And Jesus was so impressed by this act of faith by these people. He says this, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man uh, speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, immediately Jesus perceived in his spirit what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said this, Which is easier to say the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has the power on earth to forgive sins. He chose to tell him your sins are forgiven you. Jesus had the power to forgive sins. So that thief on the cross, if Jesus said your, your sins are forgiven, guess what? Your sins are forgiven. And if Jesus says to you today with our baptism, your sins are forgiven, that would be true. But the trouble is, is he's not walking on the earth anymore. And so we don't have anybody that's in that situation. He's left us away. And so whether, the, whether the, the thief on the cross was baptized or not is really a moot point because Jesus had the power to, to forgive sins. And the second argument is simply this, is that the New Testament wasn't in effect yet. It says this in Hebrews, in chapter 9, he says, For where there is a testament, there also must of necessity be the death of the testator. In other words, until Jesus died, the, the new law the, was not enforced yet. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't in play. So when was that law effective? On the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus' death. The first gospel sermon was preached. Now interestingly, you know what Pentecost was? It was a celebration of the giving of the law. Let me say that again. 
It was, Pentecost was a celebration of the giving of the law. And so we find here in Acts chapter 2, at the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches this lesson to uh, a message to all these people and all heard in their different languages. And the lesson was essentially this. Jesus was the Son of God, and he proved it by all these examples in history. And that you killed him. And their response was this. The most important question ever asked in the history of man. Now, when they heard this, this Peter's preaching, they were cut to a heart. They were touched. They realized the error of their way. And they said to Peter and the rest of the disciples, men and brethren, what shall we do? What are we going to do to fix this problem? We have denied the Son of God and we've, we've killed him. And so what are we going to do about it? Well, Peter says this. He says, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That was Peter's answer. That you should be baptized. And so that's the point at which the new law came into existence and became an in force. And so finally then, the last piece of this is a question I, I'd heard this all my life. In fact, growing up a Baptist, you heard that law as well. You know, the thief on the cross wasn't baptized. And we were in a Bible study some years ago. Michael was leading that Bible study. It was about probably a decade ago. And he asked the question, was the thief baptized? Never a question I even thought to ask. But it's a pretty good one. I mean, so even if he wasn't baptized, does it really matter? We've already proven that Jesus had the power to forgive sins. We've already proven that, that the law, the New Testament wasn't in force yet, and so, so it may be an extent, uh, a moot point to an extent, but this is a good question. Was he baptized? Well, here's what we do know about this guy. He lived in Jerusalem. He was there in the city of Jerusalem, which is the largest city, the main hub in the land of Judea. And we find that in, in describing the movement of Jesus, here's what it says. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those of Jerusalem went out to him and were baptized by him in the, in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. This was, I want you to get the idea that this was an enormous movement. This was not something that was done over in the corner of a room in a whisper. There was, you talk about a big movement that everybody knew about. Jesus was that. It was a huge event. And so even John baptized most, uh, now maybe it wasn't every person, but it was a lot. And so then in John chapter 4, we find this passage. It says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, he left Judea because the timing wasn't right yet for him to be crucified. And so he left. So we, this was an enormous movement. When Jesus spoke the uh, Sermon on the Mount, he went up onto a mountain so people could see him. 
was, as I got pictured here, there were some times when he would be preaching in these, in this, around the Sea of Galilee, and he would get in a boat and cast out a little bit so that there could be some distance between he and the people, and the people could look and consume. Again, I want you to get the perspective that it was a huge movement, and there were undoubtedly thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people that were baptized and were part of this movement. But I want you to focus on the words here, and this really struck me. So let's pick it up in verse 41. The thief is talking, and he's speaking to his fellow comrade that's been crucified there aside, beside Jesus. And he says that, And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man's done nothing wrong. Now Jesus said that he was the Son of God done nothing wrong. So it's kind of ta it's kind of the same as it's tantamount to saying that he believed him. That he was the son of God. So the only way you can make that claim and not be wrong is if it were true. Then he goes on to say, and this is the most interesting line, then he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now think about the reaction of the other disciples. What happened when Jesus was taken away and crucified? What did they do? They scattered. They ran. They thought that it was over. Peter said, I'm going fishing. That this movement that I was part of is now the Messiah's dead. And they say, this, this plan kingdom that we, it's just not going to happen. But this guy had heard. He knew from somewhere that, that this king was going to have a kingdom. And so he says to him, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He shows an understanding here that most of the disciples, that, that even the 12 that followed him the closest, didn't really understand. So... Can, can I prove this morning beyond the shadow of a doubt that this man was baptized? No. I can't prove it. But what would you say the preponderance of evidence was? If you had to say one way or the other, what would you say? Well, I would have to say that this guy was probably baptized. This guy was part of the movement. He knew, he knew things that other people didn't know. He understood things that other people didn't understand. And so again, whether he was or was, whether he wasn't, it's really a, a certain point, a moot point, but in another way it's not, because a lot of people who make that claim that, well, he wasn't baptized. Really? Probably was. So why is baptism, why did God choose baptism? Why is that? You know, he says this in Romans chapter 6. He says, But God be thanked that, uh, that through you, uh, that though you were, you were, excuse me, but God be thanked that though you were slaves to sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. That form of doctrine was baptism itself. That was the form. You know, when we talk about obeying the gospel, you can't really obey good news, can you? And that's what the gospel was. It was good news. 
You can't obey good news, but you can obey a form of that good news, which was baptism. And so that's what he describes here in the earlier parts of chapter 6. He says, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. So it is, it is a symbolic reenactment of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified. So, lower into that, that watery uh, grave of baptism and put to death to rise to walk a new, new life. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be saved, slaves to sin. Baptism is important because God said it was important. That's why. So just, to, just in recap, just a, a few more verses that would, again, indicate that it's clearly uh, God's desire for his people to follow him in baptism. Mark 16, 16, who believes and is baptized shall be saved. That's the Great Commission. It's also repeated in uh, Matthew chapter 28. Uh, Jesus was baptized. We find that in Matthew chapter 3. For as many of you as were baptized have put on Christ, Galatians 3 and 27. Now when they went down the road, uh, they came to water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What does hinder me to be baptized? The Ethiopian eunuch was preached to him the gospel, and somewhere in that preaching, baptism was mentioned. And so when they got to water, what did he say? He, he says to, to Philip, who had been the one that preached to him, he said, here's water, what hinders me to be baptized? And so he does that. And even, in, even the apostle Paul struck down on the road to Damascus, blinded for three days, spent three days in prayer. You think he didn't believe? He believed. He had spoke to Jesus. Ananias said to him, Why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized, washing away your sins. Ananias was still in his sins after three days of repenting, calling upon the name of the Lord. So let's not let baptism be a hindrance to us or to, be, or to our religious friends that, that we happen to have some type of influence with. Let's persuade them that this is one act that they can take that will lead to their salvation. Um, we don't know the hearts and minds of the audience this morning. We're going to offer a song of invitation. If we can help you in any way, we would ask you to come as we stand and sing the song that's been selected.